Uh, hello, everybody. I'm uh, just, uh, arriving back in this space together with you. It's kind of interesting just sitting here and uh, being aware of all of you in the many different locations that you are. And the sense of this shared location of here, that we are in together. And uh, I was remembering as I was walking down, one of my teachers, Ajahn Sachito, a, a wonderful and venerable Englishman, Buddhist monk, and a very fortunate, for me, a very fortunate companion in the path and teacher. And I remember coming to a retreat he was teaching once where he, he just sat down at the beginning and looked at us all for a while and he kind of looked around the room and I can't quite look at you all in the same way, but I, I think I have the sense of the question that he had, which was, I really wonder how you're all doing. And, and that sense of, I'm here to talk about the practice and the teachings and and there's a way in which I'm very aware of all of our journeys, all of our lives, all of our experiences at the moment, somehow arising and engaging us as they are in all the different ways they will be. And um, for me, there's something quite, quite beautiful and also quite humbling in that sense of being asked to speak here. And so I'm, I'm really happy to, to offer some reflections. I'm actually just going to adjust my screen a little bit. I, I'm trying to do several things at once here with being able to actually see the screen and what's here and um, also be tuned into what I want to speak about. So looking at you and also finding my own line of response. And I was reading through some of the, some of the chat that we recorded and um, just really feeling the sense of that, as I said, the different places, the countries, the worlds in which we are in. And in listening to the questions that have come during the day and being in two group meetings with some of you and hearing other reflections, it seems to me what, what stands out the most for this in this situation is is really what does it ask of us and what is possible for us in, in terms of holding both the recognition of and the caring for the suffering that's happening around us and in our own experience. How do we embody a quality of, of real tenderness and sensitivity and equally a sense of compassionate responding, of finding our pathway to what may be possible to contribute. And while doing that, equally allowing ourselves the blessing to receive, to recognize the blessing of what is, is what is beautiful, of what is wholesome, of what is precious in this time. To access the resources of teachings and practice that we are fortunate to have 
And while acknowledging that not everyone will share this good fortune, nonetheless allowing ourselves to receive what is here for us and to make use of whatever privilege or good fortune we have to to reach out, to serve and support the welfare of others, equally as ourselves. And to be able in the midst, to have permission, in fact, in the midst of what is clearly distressing and tragic and painful for so many of our human community in so many ways. But within that, to also give ourselves permission to be able to find the peace or the ease or the well-being that may be possible for us within that. And to not see that tender, caring and compassionate concern is in any way in contradiction with or in conflict with the possibility of of finding peace and ease and actually a sense of the, the beauty and blessedness of life, even amidst its tragedy and its difficulty. Because it seems that the fundamentals of our human situation haven't actually changed that much. This is the same mind, the same heart, the same body we've been living our lives in. It's sometimes something we say on a retreat. Yes, we're stepping out of the world onto a retreat, but we're going to be with this mind, this heart, this body that we live our life through and with. In that sense, a retreat is not removed from our life and this particular situation of the coronavirus pandemic and this particular situation of the lockdown and of our retreat, we still have this mind, this heart, this body. And learning what that means for us, learning how to meet, to engage with and to respond to this human experience is always going to be a fundamental or essential element of our a human life well lived. And the fundamentals of our situation also that have not changed also include the fact that we ourselves and others around us have always been in a process of dying. From the moment we are born, we are headed in that direction. That trajectory is inevitable to us and for us and for everyone we know and care about and And this situation brings that into relief, makes it more clear to us, makes it more unarguably obvious, the vulnerability and the the tenderness of that situation, the potential for pain, for grief, for loss, for sorrow, is immense. And this has always been true of our lives. It's not because of the situation right now that it is so though maybe the situation right now helps us to see it more clearly. It calls on us to open to it more fully, more deeply. The other, what I would say, perhaps fundamental element of our human situation that has not changed is that our actions and our choices have always had the capacity to help and to harm others and ourselves. And it's because of this that we, I think, are moved to engage in practice, to see so much of what our actions express themselves, express themselves by, 
by habit, by, habit, by unconscious by reaction. And we see that doesn't and serve our world. We doesn't serve our world. We wish to become more conscious, more awake to what moves in us and through us in order to align ourselves with what is wholesome, with what contributes to well-being, to peace, to happiness in ourselves and in our world. This, I think, is a natural and beautiful response that we have. And this, again, is true now, not because of the situation, but because, but perhaps more clearly we see, yes, our actions impact each other. And we are impacted by the actions of each other. So when we see this, I think it helps with getting a sense of what's really important. To go on a retreat is to make a choice about letting go of what is less important. And to be in this lockdown, as many, I imagine all of us in some degree, wherever we are in the world, in this situation, there's a, there's a kind of a coming back to, a pairing our life down to what's most essential. And that we see in this, as someone commented in some, some article I was reading, we see that perhaps the celebrities, not that I have anything against celebrities, but the celebrities and our focus on their activities turns out not to be essential. That we can actually do without sports, even though we might miss them. And sports stars. But we can't do without people who stack the shelves in supermarkets. We can't do without really paying attention to what our body is engaged in. Because here, if we don't take care, we may infect others or we may infect ourselves. That's quite something. That suddenly mindfulness isn't just about my meditation practice, it's actually about directly and obviously about my well-being and the well-being of my community. And going shopping this afternoon, as I did, needing some essentials or relatively essentials, I was just struck with that, that awareness of where my body is and how close I am to another, what I do with my hand after I touch something or if I touch myself. All of that suddenly becomes essential. And our sense of safeguarding, of protecting ourselves and each other, this comes very clearly into focus. This becomes what we need to engage with. And what does it mean also to engage with what serves the deepest well-being of ourselves and our world and our communities? Because this is what is essential. When we when we look at our life, when we have time to, to settle, to rest a little more deeply, it is our shared well-being. Not just our physical well-being, of course, which is essential and in many ways primary, but equally our emotional and our spiritual well-being. 
And interestingly, in this time of danger, in terms of the physical danger, and for many, the emotional danger, for others, of course, the sense of spiritual well-being stands forth. And we see that stopping, that pausing, that no longer engaging in activities of entertainment and distraction and consumption and busyness, being required to put that down, although difficult, actually brings some sense of relief or some, some quality of becoming closer to ourselves. That maybe we feel this quality of presence more immediately because we're not so busy. We can't be so engaged with so many other things. We may again recognize the blessedness of the natural world around us, that sometimes we're so busy rushing through that we don't actually allow ourselves to feel, to see the the simple nourishment that comes from a living plant or tree, from the call of a bird or the scamper of a squirrel, or the soft touch of of a creature that may be our friend. This, this time, this, what it means to be on a retreat is to say to ourselves, what is most important? How fully can I give myself to this? This is our task. And wakefulness is important as a foundation for all things which we can discover, which we can cultivate. And so, so we cultivate this as a foundation, this wakefulness. And we see that in doing so, we are inevitably required to turn towards that which is not easy to bear. This word that we we hear in the Buddha's teachings that many of you will be familiar with, dukkha, that's sometimes translated as suffering or as uh, anguish or as stress or different words, none of which quite fully capture its meaning. And the the phrase that I feel for me most expresses it or expresses it most usefully is is that, as I just said, that which is not easy to bear or that which is hard to bear. And for ourselves personally and in our world, there is much of this. And we see that some of our busyness in life and busyness perhaps even in this day today fixing things, solving things, producing things, doing things, all of which might be pragmatic and useful. Sometimes it's a way we keep ourselves a little distant from feeling the rub, feeling the edge, feeling the ache of what is not easy to bear, where there may be sorrow or grief or pain or uncertainty. And and to just turn towards this with courage, is something profoundly supportive and liberating. Although it might not sound like it when we contemplate it at a distance. Really? Why do I want to consider this? Why would I wish to give attention to this? And yet if we don't, of course, our life is entangled and engaged by it and we don't even realize it. So just the naming of it can be a relief. And, you know, the Buddha spoke about this again and again. 
we are all subject to aging, to sickness and to death. And we can just contemplate that. Particularly at this time, sickness and death. Standing out perhaps, but equally aging because there's a vulnerability in that for us all. And the Buddha spoke of pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation and despair. Difficult experiences, each and every one of them, that we all encounter as part of our lives. He spoke about what it is like for us to be separated from what we love or those whom we love, to be associated with what we don't like or who we don't like and what it's like for us to not get what we want. This teaching points us to our our body, our heart, our mind. These elements and dimensions of our experience are subject to that which is hard to bear. And we're called, we're asked, we're invited to turn towards it. Because as we do, understanding that it's not our fault that it's so. It's not because we've done something wrong that this experience arises. It's inevitable. It's inherent. Because we love and care about things and people in situations that cannot last forever, because of that, because of our sensitivity and our caring, we will also feel loss and sorrow. And the sweetness and tenderness of being connected with what we care about, that which is precious to us, is always balanced by the, by the sorrow and the pain at the parting that inevitably comes, whether through intention, through accident, or through ultimately the fact that our mortality means that we or others will not be here forever. And in the situation of of loss, of uncertainty, of vulnerability, of illness and death, it can be helpful to contemplate this. To really just turn towards, oh yes, this is how life has always been. That doesn't mean we treat it casually. That we somehow imagine that because it is so, we shouldn't have a feeling response. No, not at all. In fact, so important to allow ourselves to have that feeling response, to not be afraid of how we experience our feeling life, but to learn to make friends with it. Often what's difficult for us when we find ourselves on our own, whether the relative aloneness of being by ourselves, maybe in a lockdown without others or without a lot of contact, or the, the aloneness of, of solitude and meditation and the inner space of our own experience. Learning what it means to make friends with ourselves, to be in relationship with ourselves, to be present to and with ourselves. This is something the practice calls and invites us to again and again. Every time we come back, every time we return, every time we reconnect, we're coming into relationship, not just with our experience, but with, with some sense of our life that we can learn to hold, that we are invited to bring a sense of care and kindliness to in that process. And so some of the experiences that we encounter 
it's really important to just name and acknowledge them. So many of them will be shared. And as people have said in the the smaller groups and in other points, the sense of feeling the sharedness of our situation is so powerful here. It can feel like it's too big to hold the grief of what's taking place in our world. The loss and the sorrow can feel more than my heart can manage. And in that context, of course, understanding that we are not in this by ourselves or alone, that this is a shared carrying and holding we undertake, that we do our part within that. But sometimes when it feels too much or more than I can hold, what we're asked in that moment to do is to to open up our sensitivity, to open our heart to the resonance of each other, the presence of our neighbours, our family, our community. And here, this retreat community, all of us here, and some 250 or more, it seems, at this time. And just sensing what that is, that we share this, that we hold this together, not by ourselves, this vulnerability, this mortality, and the the sorrows, the griefs, and the fears that may accompany. If you feel on your own, if you feel lonely, it's so important to reach out here. And you can reach out with your heart a little, equally as you might reach out with a message to a friend, to ask for a conversation, or to offer a family member a space in which to share. That sense of reaching out is our resource here. And reaching out to ourselves equally, that sense of being able and willing to offer to ourselves a kindliness and a caring. As we were practicing in the the meditation this afternoon, to extend friendliness and caring to ourselves is so important in this situation. To include and give space for how this is difficult for you that may or may not be similar to how it is for another, but to know the fact of difficulty, the fact of dukkha, this is shared, this is universal. We all partake of this. And there's something deeply relieving for our heart to understand. It's not about me or you or any one of us. It's the nature of things. It's not the totality of our truth and our existence, but it is one fundamental element of it. And so what I'd also like to just mention with the, in the situation where we might be feeling fear, we might not find it easy to have our attention drawn to these topics, or we might find ourselves compelled into thinking about or concern about what will happen to me, to those I love, to my world or my community. And I think it's really important to understand that movement of fear and the anxiety, and perhaps sometimes it can feel much stronger in terms of panic or terror, that this is a movement 
that arises from the experience where we are. It tends to create the sense of a story about what's going to happen. But what's actually happening is the fear or the anxiety right here. And to meet that in our body, to ground and feel what it's like, and at the same time to feel the ground underneath us. This is one of the important reasons we cultivate mindfulness of body, of breathing, of sitting, of standing, to have a resource, to have a place we can come back to when we need to, to support and hold what can otherwise be the challenging intensity of our emotional life and not be spun into the future trying to figure out what to do about things that have not yet happened or taken place. And it can be really helpful to give more attention to that sense of ground, of contact with earth, when we feel fear, when we feel anxious, just to come back and check and see if it's okay just for now. And often I think we'll find that even with uncomfortable experiences, when we come back into the immediacy of just now, we find there's a resource there that supports us that we lose touch with when we move into the future, when we become lost in the stories of what might be and how we might feel, if that should be the case. And we might notice, as someone observed in one of the conversations, I can't remember if it was the question and answer or one of the small groups, that often underneath that is some fear or some grief. Sorry, underneath the fear, underneath that sense of what is a feeling of grief or sadness or pain. That's already here. It's not about what might happen. It's part of our experience of what we know from our life already and what we may be afraid to encounter again. And yet, knowing that this is here, we can also see that whatever experience it was that arose in, we survived that. We came through it. Perhaps we grew and are stronger in some ways. And equally, of course, you may feel somehow still affected, impacted, or limited by that. But it is right here where we are that we can engage with it and begin to transform it. And to bring that sensitivity and kindliness again into our experience, to feel in the body, oh, it's like this right here. My experience feels this way right now. And if it feels too intense or if it feels too strong, if we can't really connect with it or we find ourselves bouncing off in reactivity or disconnection, make your attention softer and wider. What tends to happen when we're encountering the difficult experiences, we tighten, we contract. And that actually makes it harder for us to meet it. It's almost as if we try and get too close. And often there's some agenda there of trying to fix or get rid of the experience. To step back or to move our attention into the full sense of the whole body. Or maybe to take up some space of the room around us or the, the land in which we're, we're situated. To just allow there to be more space can often be very helpful in reducing the intensity of the experience and starting to find some ground from which we can start to touch into it to feel it, that sense of connection with that wider field of our life, of what is more than just me, our connections with each other and the world and life. In whatever way we feel that, 
we may feel the shared breath that moves in our bodies and through our bodies and into and through the bodies of all the creatures and all the living things, plants and animals around us who share this breath. We may feel this quiet but potent sense of presence that likewise penetrates through all of life and all around us that we can feel even with the vastness of distance that may separate us just by knowing we are here in this in this space of the retreat connected through this zoom channel we somehow sense something that is not bound by or limited by the distances And that may speak to us of our deeper connectedness as a resource for holding what is not easy as we turn towards it, as we open to it. Understanding it's not just ours, personally, mine. It's something shared inevitably and always. And I also just want to mention the the way in which for many of us it's not easy to allow ourselves to appreciate and enjoy what is fortunate, what is good, what is blessed in our situations. And there's two ways that happens. One of the ways which we, we again, has been touched in some of the conversations and the groups and questions is the way our attention tends to go to the problem. And I think, I think maybe... River said in the, and rather beautifully in the questions and answer about how we have our mind is like um, Velcro for problems or difficulties and Teflon for, for blessings and, and what is beautiful or pleasurable. And why is that so, we might ask? It's interesting to see how we can observe it. At a certain level, biologically, we're running on sort of evolutionary survival patterns. But until we train and develop the heart and mind tend to dominate our experience and our responses. And the, the basic survival patterns involved in this situation are that if we walked out of our, just to say, we go back a few thousand years, if we walked out of our cave and we didn't happen to notice the tiger outside, we just happened to not see it straight away, that's it, you get one chance. If you don't see the tiger, you're dead, your history, your dinner. So we want to make sure we notice the tiger. If you walk out of your cave and you don't see the apple on the tree straight away, it's okay. You can find it somewhere along the line. So it's like, first of all, make sure you're not going to get eaten. Second of all, look, look out yourself. What's for dinner? In terms of basic survival, that's going on for us. It's, not, it's important to notice or to recognize that what conduces to survival does not necessarily always conduce to well-being, to happiness and to deep inner fulfillment so here we we're learning and practicing that sense of balancing what also makes it difficult for us is many times we feel somehow either guilty about or unworthy of the privileges and the blessings that we may have the good fortune to receive or to have access to. Some of that can be quite understandably because we recognize we have a greater and privileged access to them than many other people who are no less worthy and deserving than ourselves. But through the 
the different fortune of their particular circumstance have less access to them, to these privileges or blessings we may have. So there can be a, a kind of a sense of responsibility that comes with that. Not, and I don't think that means one shouldn't be receiving and allowing oneself to appreciate one's blessing, but also to balance that with the commitment to find ways to share, find ways to resolve the injustices of an unequal and unequal distribution of blessing, of privilege, of good fortune in our world, in our communities, and in our lives. And that's natural and appropriate that we have that response. But what we can also sometimes feel like is that it's just not quite okay for me to have this, as if I'm not deserving of it. And while it's true that we ourselves don't deserve it more than any other, it's also true to say we do not deserve it less than any other. We are equally deserving as are all beings of safety, of well-being, of food, of companionship, of being blessed by what is precious and beautiful in life. And so is it okay to be happy, to enjoy what might seem fortunate? I believe it is not just okay, but essential. That we honour ourselves by allowing ourselves to receive what is here that is beautiful. To let our hearts be nourished. I just listening just now as I'm speaking to the birds and the trees and it seems there's more bird song because the human beings are all inside. How lovely. It feels important to enjoy that. And at the same time to let my heart be tender that some of those people in their houses right now will not be happy or not feeling well or feeling safe. Can we open to all of this? This that is our life, that is not a different life, but this is our life for now. And as I said, in some fundamental ways, perhaps not so different than the life we may have known before and the life we will know after this particular territory of the coronavirus pandemic, of the lockdown, of whatever it is that you're encountering at this time. In the small groups and questions and answers today, I was, I was not surprised, but at the same time, of course, interested to hear the questions about things that are our common experience, how to work with anger, when we think we should be filled with kindness, and sometimes we're not. Can we be kind to ourselves in those moments? Make space for our responses. Or when we wish to be awake and we find ourselves sleepy in meditation, or we wish to be sleeping and we find ourselves unable to in the night. And how difficult that is. It's so interesting, isn't it, with sleepiness? It's not pleasant or unpleasant per se. It just depends whether it turns up in the right place. And it's really pleasant to feel wakeful when we need to be wakeful. And really unpleasant if we're trying to go to sleep. And actually it's really pleasant to feel drowsy and sleepy if we want to go to sleep. Whereas it can be really unpleasant when we're trying to be awake in meditation. I think there's something delightful about that, just to see, oh, it's not an absolute. That's part of how our experience is. 
it keeps changing according to the conditions and how we experience it likewise changes. And other topics too of the conversation. They were the kind of topics we would find ourselves talking about in a retreat where we were all together having chosen to come to spend some time in solitude without the context we have now. Which again to me points to that sort of universal commonality of our situation now in relationship to other situations we might be in. And one of you asked a question following the guided meditation where River had referred to the, um, the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And it's a, it's a beautiful phrase. I, I wasn't there at the uh, guided meditation, as you probably, many of you will know, but I did, was there when it was raised in the questions. And what, what came up for me in just listening to the reflection on it was it was some words from a poem that um, I've known and loved for many, many years. And, um, and it's, it's from a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Zen master, a Vietnamese Zen master, a wonderful activist, meditation teacher, and a poet. And in his poem, Call Me By My True Names, where he, he reflects on the experience of what it is to be born into the particular circumstances of our own life and how we could have been born into the circumstances of another just as easily. He, he reflects at one point of the poem, he says, My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open, the door of compassion. And that the sense and the, the beauty of Thai, as he's known, his words in that, to, to really sit in that place of the fullness of our pain, like a river of tears, so vast it fills up the four oceans. And at the same time, to acknowledge our joy like the spring, and we're here, at least in the northern hemisphere, and, and certainly in England, a very sunny springtime. So warm it makes flowers bloom. And feeling how there's something beautiful that comes. With the tenderness too. The flowers and the tears are inevitably connected. When we feel into our participation in life, at the sharedness of our experience, the connectedness of our experience, quite naturally our heart opens more fully into the possibility of caring for this world, each other and ourselves when we know that we are not separate from or apart from, we are in fact much more a part of this wholeness, this blessed and beautiful wholeness, that at the same time is at times terrible and tragic, that we could call life if we needed or wished to give it a name, but we can also feel 
that perhaps the words don't quite capture where the depth of our heart may resonate with this. And in that compassionate response, responding, to see it's important to ask for help when we need help. To be willing to receive the offering of others. Sometimes that's not easy. To allow others to help us. To not have to be independent because we are not. And at the same time to make our own offering of what we can do. Because we can all do something, even just offering a quiet word of well-wishing in our hearts to those who are struggling at this time. Or to ourselves if we are struggling at this time. Reaching out with our hearts, even when we cannot reach out with our hands. And there's a poem I'd like to share that I I read in one of the Guy House uh, Dharma Hall um, evenings. But it was written by a poet in in San Francisco, I believe, Lynn Ungar, uh, a few weeks ago, as this pandemic began. It's entitled Pandemic. And she writes, What have you thought of it? as the Jews consider the Sabbath, the most sacred of times. Cease from travel, cease from buying and selling. Give up just for now on trying to make the world different than it is. Sing, pray, touch only those to whom you commit your life. Center down. And when your body has become still, Reach out with your heart. Know that we are connected in ways that are terrifying and beautiful. You could hardly deny it now. Know that our lives are in one another's hands. Surely that has become clear. Do not reach out your hands. Reach out your heart. Reach out your words. Reach out all the tendrils of compassion that move invisibly where we cannot touch. Promise this world your love, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, so long as we all shall live. It was written on the 11th of March, I've just seen exactly one month ago. But just for now, Just noticing how those words land for and with you. Touch only those to whom you commit your life. Center down. Something beautiful in that sense of rather than who we shouldn't touch, actually who we do touch. And center down. Not lock down or shut down, but center down that kind of gathering into focus what is essential here. Reaching out your heart, your words, and the tendrils of compassion. And promise this world your love, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, so long as we all shall live. 
that beautiful evoking of the vow of commitment we perhaps know in the context of marriage, traditional marriage vows, but that here might express for us the, the commitment to our life and to our world and to each other, that the situation asks of us to be fully and deeply committed here to loving ourselves, each other, and this world as deeply as we can, as fully as we're able. And I think so far as the situation calls us and makes clear for us that this is our our duty, this is our, our practice, this is our life, then in fact the situation has a profound element of blessing in it for all that it equally has, deep pain and tragedy. Can we sit and hold these two together here? This human life, its vulnerability and its beauty and its inevitable mortality. This worldly situation of suffering and yet equally of sacred possibility to find our ways to come together in the midst of all of this to open our hearts and to reach out through this world. So let's just sit quietly for a few moments together. And I think Ella will add the the poem to the chat in just a moment. But for now, we'll just sit for a few moments quietly. May we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we find what we need at this time for the well-being of our bodies, for the opening of our hearts and for the deepening of our lives. And so too may all beings have and find what they need for the opening of their hearts, for the well-being of their bodies, and for the deepening of their lives, for our own well-being, and for the deepest well-being of all that all that lives.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.